Coming up on Life is a Festival. When the narrative focuses on you are going to drink plant medicines and ayahuasca is going to help you figure out your childhood trauma, then that primes people to experience those experiences in a very particular way, right? And we do know a lot about certain settings nowadays to kind of get a feel that psychedelics very rarely do anything on their own, right? Like there's a huge influence of what is the story that we're telling about what this is doing that will prime people to experience things in a very particular way. So when a facilitator is saying like your experience is going to direct you towards figuring out your childhood trauma, Oftentimes, a person is going to feel a lot of pressure to actually find out that childhood trauma. And, you know, that person can have all sorts of different experiences and feel like they're missing on something. Like, oh, like something is not right. Like, why am I having this experience of awe or bliss or connectedness to the earth when I, you know, I'm supposed to kind of reach out for the deeper layers of my trauma? Which is absurd, but also can be dangerous. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. Have you found yourself captured by a never-ending healing journey? You know what I'm talking about? This has been something that has come up for me a lot in the past few years. My whole identity kind of got wrapped up in this idea of self-knowing and healing and personal growth and personal development. And I found through my own experience, but also through reflections of people that I admire and care about, that I was kind of in a sort of personal development cul-de-sac where I was becoming increasingly self-absorbed in my healing journey, trying to dislodge pockets of unknown trauma inside my being, as if that would somehow assuage a pretty understandable, anxious relationship to late-stage capitalism. So recently with this podcast, I've been trying to poke some holes at that. And I've looked at spiritual narcissism. I've looked at this strange movement of conspirituality. Today, we're setting the bullseye right on healing culture. And particularly this idea of how we can get so caught up in the hyper-individualism of a healing culture that's strongly connected to consumerism more broadly. And for that, I have the brilliant Adam Andros Aronovich, creator of the popular Healing from Healing platform on the show, to help us heal from healing culture itself. At least that is the goal, and a lofty goal indeed. So on this show today, Adam and I are going to discuss the fundamental importance of community in healing work. We're going to talk about the diminishing returns that happen when we are chasing ongoing peak experiences, which of course I have done. We review the modern preoccupation with trauma. Trauma is sort of where everything is focused at this moment in terms of healing culture. Preoccupation with the hero's journey and what Adam refers to as cinematic epistemology, which is the idea that we all must be the main character of some grand mythology. Finally, Adam helps us learn to serve with our full being without becoming narcissists. And this is great for this show, how joy and celebration are in fact potent healing modalities. So Adam is the creator of Healing from Healing, which is a social media platform that casts a critical, skeptical, and humorous gaze at healing culture. He is a doctoral candidate 
focusing on medical anthropology and cultural psychiatry, an active member of the Medical Anthropology Research Center, and part of the Ayahuasca Community Committee at the Chacruna Institute. Adam spent more than four years conducting research and extensive fieldwork in the Peruvian Amazon, where he also facilitated ayahuasca workshops in the context of shamanic and medical tourism. Adam also facilitates preparation and integration processes in private practice and helps clients reframe healing within relational and recreative frameworks and a secular, humanistic, grounded, and open-ended interpretive and epistemic orientation. And that, my friends what Adam is going to help us do today. So without further ado, here is Adam Aronovich. Adam, yes. welcome to Life is a Festival. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to have you here. And just out the gate, I love healing from healing as a concept because I think that my healing might now be the problem. Yeah, I mean, that's the point, right? Like the, the healing from healing concept is really, I would, first and foremost, I guess, honoring and acknowledging that healing is an important thing, but also how it can be detrimental, both for individuals and as a whole, you know, for the community when we overdo it. Adam, we're going to be speaking for about 90 minutes today. And we're both familiar with each other's work. We have enough of a connection that we can go pretty deep on some topics, both emotionally and philosophically. What would be your big win for this conversation? So, I mean, my intention with the messaging that I try to put out there oftentimes relates to the same theme, which is really bringing some attention and light into the relational dimensions of well-being and health. Yeah, like getting people out of kind of this hyper-individualistic perception of what being happy and healthy means and pay more attention to the relationships between individual health and community health, individual health and social health, individual health and, you know, the health of the culture that envelops individuals and communities and beyond that, the health of the environment that sustains us and how these things that oftentimes get invisibilized by a hyper-fixation on the individual are actually probably the most important dimensions that we should be focusing when it comes to healing, whatever that means, but being happy and healthy for sure. So on this show, I've spoken to some luminaries in the space of transformational critique, and we've spoken a lot about issues of conspirituality and spiritual narcissism especially. And those are kind of like wild excesses of New Age culture, certainly. But what I'm really interested in speaking to you about especially because it is so close to my own experience and where I feel stuck in my life, is this perpetual cul-de-sac of healing. I want to do another transformational experience. I want to do another plant medicine ceremony. If I just do the next thing, then I'm going to unlock the key to my anxiety and depression. I'm going to dislodge whatever sort of somatic holding is preventing me from living my most expressed self. And perhaps if I can just unlock, for lack of a better expression, what is wrong with me, see inside it and understand it, then perhaps I'll have something beautiful to give to my community that not only will justify all this work and will make everybody like me, but also I can potentially monetize it and then I can be a leader in the wellness community. That seems like a problematic course of action. And 
there was a time when I thought festival culture and plant medicine were inexorably marching us towards progress and a healed world. Now it doesn't seem so. And I find myself, although less so with the support of my community, also caught up in this individualistic hyperfixation on personal trauma and the desire to unlock the riddle of myself and then somehow turn that into some kind of service and livelihood for others. And I know a lot of people listening to this show have had the same sort of quagmire. So perhaps we can pick that apart on this show and maybe land at a place where we can take some of the best of these healing modalities, some of the best of the intentions that got us here in the first place, and actually direct them more towards nourishing communities and actual healing well, I don't even know if healing is what I'm looking for, but a way of being yeah. in the world that feels more holistic and connected and honestly more joyful and less self-preoccupied. Yeah, I think it is important also for me to acknowledge that I'm not critiquing healing culture as an outsider looking in, but you know, I'm fully immersed in it too, both through personal experience, the same as your healing path. I've gone through my own for many years and also the work that I do and that I have been doing for many years, including my research. I mean, the research that I, that I do also focuses a lot on healing. This is not like an attack on healing. I don't want anybody to feel like we're diminishing from the courage and the dedication that it takes to actually take responsibility for oneself and do the hard work that is required to be able to heal what needs to be healed. You know, like what we're talking about really is how to think about healing in a different way that actually enhances the healing potential, that it's not just a band-aid that perpetuates the status quo, which is, I guess, one of the things that we're going to be speaking about, but something that actually has like actual transformational potential beyond kind of like, the narrow definitions of what health and well-being are within a kind of neoliberal consumerist society. So yeah, I mean, more than anything, really, it is a critique that is coming from the heart <laughs> to really provide people with a different perspective and expand our definitions of what he- well-being can be and how healing can lead to that. Well, Adam, in that spirit, let's start with you. I think one of the issues we see in wellness influencers and leadership is that it's a lot of people who have come from maybe a corporate environment, a business environment, done a couple ayahuasca ceremonies and are rebranding themselves as a shaman or some kind of facilitator or guide. But you've been studying plant medicine and you've worked in this environment for many years. Healing from Healing as a project is only about a year old. Let's talk about your credentials here (laughs) so that our listeners are aware of the depth of your study and they can look at your perspective through that lens. So before the pandemic, I spent four years in the Amazon rainforest, in a well-known ayahuasca retreat center, where I was both facilitating workshops. I spent a good chunk of time actually working 24 hours a day pretty much facilitating groups that came to the center for seeking healing through the Amazonian medical system. And throughout that time, I was also engaged in a few different collaborative research projects with different well-known research institutions within the psychedelic space, and including also my own fieldwork leading to my doctoral project, which I'm writing these days. So... 
most of my doctoral work I did really in the Amazon rainforest, focused on, in very broad terms, the therapeutic potential of ayahuasca, seen through the lens of kind of like the Western mental health institutions, right? So how can ayahuasca be useful for people that are suffering from depression, that are experiencing anxiety, and so on and so forth? And what I started realizing as I was doing that work, both hands-on with people and also kind of like the third-person observation leading to the research, was that there were dimensions of what people express that were very important to them as part of the healing that they experienced during the workshop that I hadn't really taken into account to begin with. Most of the research that I did was actually qualitative. So I ran probably 120, 130 interviews with people after they just finished an ayahuasca retreat, right? And one of the questions that I would ask is, what were the most beneficial aspects of the retreat for you? Right, so when we think about ayahuasca, we often, nowadays, because we have an extremely psychologized perspective of what ayahuasca can do, we oftentimes think about the intra-psychic, right? Like how ayahuasca allows people to have insights about themselves and their thought patterns and their behavioral patterns and childhood trauma and things that happen within the realm of their own life, like biographic things, yeah, like psychological, biographical things. And we assume, right, that that is the main driver for people to grow. So that was, well, that was more like what I was looking for in the beginning. Then another thing that ayahuasca, we think that ayahuasca does, which it does, of course, is to provide people with mind-blowing transpersonal encounters with, I guess, what I can only describe as experiences of awe, right? Like that, that word awe, which you know, we misuse quite a bit. So like, well, this is awesome. Like that movie is awesome. Like that party was awesome. But you know what really, what awe like really means, like the experience of awe of like being in awe. I mean, this is something pretty unique, right? And ayahuasca can oftentimes kind of like provide that sense of awe, right? like confronting us with whatever it is that we per perceive to be kind of like that divine, more than human intelligence, whatever spirit might manifest in different ways from different people, but that experience of awe. So the transpersonal mystical experience, right? like in like very short subtitle, like the mystical experience, which is of course a huge topic in itself. But actually, right, as I was interviewing people and I was trying to get to the bottom of what actually was that people were expressing was the most important aspect of the whole experience for them, there was a big emphasis on social components of the experience. Right? Like a lot of people would actually say, well, for me, beyond all the insights that I had about myself and all the mystical sun and you know, the expansion of my worldview and the metaphysical encounters and the ontological rearrangements, there was something about the group, right? There was something about the relationships that they forged throughout that workshop. And this is something very remarkable. You know, as a facilitator, I have a lot of experience seeing these things play out in real time, but it's really remarkable, right? For a workshop of 12 days or 21 days, you get like 20 people or 24 people who are complete strangers to each other. And as the workshop progresses, very, very quickly, people start to form really strong bonds, right? Like there's a sense of kinship, camaraderie, brotherhood. Victor Turner termed it in, you know, kind of like more anthropological terms, communitas. Right? This is a word that it's been in the zeitgeist as of late, right, like the communitas, which is kind of like this experience of shared togetherness that arises when people go through meaningful, important experiences together. There's another term called hormesis. Might have come across hormesis, right, which is something that 
happens when people bond through going to share difficulties, right? Like, so people that are in, in the army, for example, people that go through boot camp, this is something that I have personal experience with. I spent three and a half years as an officer in the army, and there's nothing that I've experienced in my life as that first few months of boot camp. The first encounter with like really difficult conditions and the people that you're with and how meaningful and beautiful those bonds become just for the only reason that you're going through that together. An ayahuasca yeah. workshop can function in the same way, right? Like people go through like really, really powerful emotional cathartic experiences, insights, sometimes like really scary, fearful things, but they go through it together. And there's a degree of vulnerability and authenticity that is encouraged, right? Like people share with each other in ways that they haven't shared probably ever in their lives. So pretty early on throughout the workshop, right? Like you start seeing how the group experience becomes primary, the mutual responsibility, the reciprocity. By the time that a group leaves the retreat, more often than not, right, like people have forged relationships that will accompany them for a very long time. Sometimes people will make friends for life during such an experience. So, you know, there is something about that kind of environment, the shared experience, the hormesis that happens, the meaningfulness of the shared togetherness that becomes very, very primary. And people single that out. A lot, as sometimes the one most meaningful experience, and definitely as some of the most meaningful experiences. My take on that, right, is that these experiences tend to be very, very meaningful for people because the majority of people who experience that <laughs> during a workshop are people that haven't experienced that ever before in their lives, right? Like the alienation, the loneliness, the erosion of our social bonds, the erosion of the social connectedness in post industrial Western societies. Loneliness now, right, is already acknowledged to be a risk factor to public health bigger than many of the risk factors that before we thought were kind of the primary, such as obesity, for example, right? So loneliness has been already acknowledged throughout kind of this process as being one of the main factors that drive mental illness, things such as depression, anxiety, even heart disease. So when people have an experience that yanks them out of that existential loneliness, when they discover that actually there are spaces where they can go through difficulties and beautiful things and be able to share that from a place of extreme vulnerability and feel safe and authentically and connect with people beyond all of those layers of alienation, there's something magical that happens for people. There's a sense of like, oh, actually, like this doesn't have to be life, right? Like there are options. I can be in actual intimate relationships with people, with friends, you know, not necessarily like intimate in the sense of sexual or romantic relationships, but the sort of intimacy that happens between people that are, again, like in this space of vulnerability and authenticity and are able to talk about things that are deep experiences that the vast majority of people in the West nowadays don't have access to and perhaps haven't experienced. So that was the one factor that stood out for me and that's where I focused my research moving forward. This highlights, I think, a perfect example of the diminishing returns of the, quote, healing journey. So first of all, as you pointed out, you have this incredible experience, this hardship that expedites bonding environment, right? And it's very potent, it's very peak. And then, you know, we've talked in the psychedelic community about integration. You go from there back into your sort of alienated 
live in a box, drive a box to another box to do your work, drive the box back, kind of like atomized life, right? And then you go and you have these peak experiences. But when you get on this kind of like cul-de-sac of a healing journey, there's diminishing returns on community in that if you're just leaping from peak experience to peak experience, from transformational container to transformational container, there's diminishing returns on the connectiveness of the people that you're connecting with. And in the beginning, these are lifelong friends. But you know, a couple years in, these are just the faces at the ceremony. So for me, and I think others like me who've had the privilege to go from transformational container to transformational container, I'm not connecting as deeply with people. In the moment to moment, I'm having a shared experience, but these experiences have less novelty. And so it lodges in my memory less. I think that that's just to start talking about this idea of diminishing returns on this perpetual treadmill of almost hedonic healing, the extraordinary power of community, that itself wears down over time because you're just kind of rinsing and repeating the experience. Jamie will term this bliss junkies and epiphany horrors. Right, this is a, a good term, I think, a good way of conceptualizing that. The diminishing returns are real, right? Because again, like we have, I mean, it's impossible to talk about these things without talking about consumerism and kind of like the dominant mindset of consumption and how that translates oftentimes also to these kind of experiences, right? I mean, in my perspective and my experience, something like ayahuasca, for example, is something that you do rarely and seldom with a lot of time in between to actually understand what happened and do the work you need to do to bring into fruition whatever insights you have and make them meaningful so they manifest in actual meaningful changes in day-to-day life, which is kind of like a crucial step that the majority of people prefer to skip. Like we talk about integration all the time, as if integration was this mystified realm of the psychedelic renaissance that we haven't really figured out, like what is the best way of integration. But the fact is, like it's Talking about integration is always going to be kind of like a, you know, elusive thing if we're not addressing the structural and systemic issues that still permeate healing culture as a reflection of the overarching cultures, right? like consumerism and late stage capitalism and so on and so forth. So we are primed in many ways, right, to perpetuate this cycle of consumption. And we think, well, you know, if I only do, you know, this much ceremonies, so or if I attend this many workshops, or if I do all of those other things then I might be able to peel enough layers of the onion that I can be happier and healthier. And like you said, like the diminishing return, particularly in the social component, is also very significant because as the novelty wears off, it just becomes another thing that people do for routine. I spent in the jungle four and a half years almost, and when you have access, for example, to plant medicine in the way that we did, it also kind of like a lot of people start behaving as if it was almost an obligation. Right, like you have to drink like every week or every two weeks or every three weeks because that's what you do. And if you don't, then you're not doing your work. But then you know, like you start understanding that it's not that each week or each ceremony, like that person is getting like a new download or some kind of cosmic magic thing that they definitely need to know, but that people are just getting kind of like the same thing over and over and over. I mean, I know from my experience. Like there was a moment when I was living in the Amazon where I had to take a step back and stop drinking. And one of the reasons was for like a period of a few months, like I was drinking probably once a week or twice a week. And each ceremony kind of like looked the same because they were kind of like overarching messages or, you know, main points that I kind of was already rehashing, 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 rehashing because there was something very primal 
that I needed to do in order to address what was being shown to me. And yet I thought, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to get better. I don't know what I need to do. And of course I need, you know, of course I knew, but it was easier for me to say, well, I'm just going to kind of jump and do another ceremony. Maybe some <laughs> magical insight is going to show up. Maybe the plants are going to, you know, magically kind of like make my brain different or it's going to be some kind of like slap in the face. You know, and I think like a lot of people get caught up in this idea that, if you keep drinking or if you keep doing the thing that you've been doing, then there's going to be some magical insight or some magical thing. When in reality, I think for the most part, the messaging is extremely straightforward. And if people don't see that or act upon it, it's not because it's not there, but because we refuse to see it. Because we make an incredible effort all the time to avoid looking at what needs to be looked. Yeah, that is one of our defense and kind of our primary defense mechanisms and coping mechanisms is to try and bury that which will cause us discomfort. That's a long-winded answer, perhaps. But yes, I think a lot of that does come from a consumerist mindset that we think more is better when in reality, when it comes to psychedelics, I don't think that's true. When it comes to plant medicine, that's definitely not true. And, you know, kind of like learning how to actually pay attention to things. If you get the message, hang up the phone. Like, it doesn't have to become a thing that you do regularly it doesn't have to become a habit it doesn't have to become a practice it just it's maintenance and that's okay yeah man the ego is a really interesting co-opting mechanism i think when we first dabble in these kind of transformational containers and we're wowed by the way that we have hitherto been stuck it's like the Pareto principle. Jamie Wheel talks about this. It's like 80% of the result from 20% of the effort. And that first 20% feels so good. And you think that you're going to be on perhaps an exponential curve, but at least a linear curve. But it turns out it's more like asymptotic. Like you're just eking towards some place you'll never get. Yes. And for me, I'll share my story briefly. When I first went to Burning Man in 2010, at the time I was drinking alcohol, I was feeling extremely locked up in terms of my sexuality. I went to Burning Man, the first Burning Man I went to was my first transformational experience, and I was witnessing people in a certain kind of freedom, particularly around sexuality and gender. And that lit up something in me and began this process of transformation. And I remember in the first couple of years, it was so sweet, man. Like I quit drinking alcohol, I started doing yoga, and I was just like, oh my God, my body's changing, and like I'm less fearful. And those first couple of years at Burning Man, it was more about fun and play and shenanigans. I had a band, we were playing music. And then the transformational experiences were kind of surprising and felt really fresh and new. And something kind of shifted around the time I first started drinking ayahuasca, where I started getting into healing as like my thing. I started getting addicted to these transformational experiences. And I had a couple big ones, particularly with ayahuasca, where I was like, I, I touched into this sort of oceanic oneness of everything. And I was like, okay, this is really, I'm getting the good stuff now. I'm really elevating. And then somehow I found myself in a place where like, I was at Burning Man, like trying to like catch this zeitgeist of transformation and kind of pursuing this transformation. And what I found is that I was getting into this interesting loop where whether it was Burning Man or it was a plant medicine ceremony, that I was architecting a, a hero's journey each time. So I suffer from anxiety and depression. I can get pretty extreme anxiety. And I would get very anxious and I would get very preoccupied and stuck in my head. And then that was the thing to overcome. And then I would hit some sort of like transformational realization 
often with the assistance of some kind of psychoactive substance. And then I would feel really good and really expanded in like, oh, I've learned it, I've got the thing. And I remember I was going to write a book about it. I, I don't know how many people listening are like, I'm on a healing journey and I'm going to write a book and it's going to save everybody and, <laughs> and then I'll be famous and everyone will love me. I wanted to write a book and yeah. it was like every transformational experience I had, I was like, this is the one where I get the key to the kingdom and this is where the, this is the climax of the book. So I'm writing a book about myself and my hero's journey of personal healing and Every ceremony, every festival, everything was like, okay, now I've got it. And it's, it's childhood trauma, but it's sexuality, and it's, it's all coming together, and it's going to heal the American male psyche or whatever grandiose thing. And then there was a moment where I was like, is it simply that these medicines, these substances, are tickling my serotonin 2A receptor and giving me a heightened sense of meaning and grandiosity, and that I'm actually not realizing that much new stuff, it's actually just the sensation of realization that I'm having. And then I'm just going back into the cycle of needing to do it again in this addictive path. And it wasn't until the pandemic and learning about what was happening with the conspirituality, like the Jules Evans writings, and talking to Eric Davis about psychedelics, he's brilliant, highly recommend him, that I was like, oh yeah. shit, I think I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> I think I'm, you know, it's like when you get the message, hang up the phone, I was like, I think I'm just like on the phone all day, just like racking up my phone bill, but I'm in a loop, like I'm stuck. Jamie Wills, like it's not the Holy Grail, it's Hotel California. So that's my story. And I'd like to talk a little bit about why that happens, the confluence of pop psychology, new age spirituality, consumerism, that vortex that kind of creates that. And then I'd love to get to a place in this conversation where we can really look at some protocols for becoming aware of that and breaking out of it. So tall right. order. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a lot in there, but I think first and foremost, I guess it's important to understand. This is like the, the thing that I'm doing right now, like a shift in my focus from the therapeutic benefits of plant medicines towards actually understanding more what healing culture is and where it originates, where the different things that influence it, where the different streams of ideologies that play into it. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that you mentioned, of course, are primary, right? Like neoliberalism is primary, hyper-individualism is primary, conspirituality as a movement is primary. This is well, like one of the, I guess, many dangers of the way that we address psychedelics and plant medicines today. Right, like we tend to ascribe kind of like an epistemic primacy to the psychedelic experience, which basically means that uh, many people believe and experience that whatever they whatever happens during the psychedelic experience, particularly with plant medicines, is more real than real in the terms that we definitely have to pay attention to that because there's something kind of like ontologically real in that experience that is very important for me. Right. So I mean you see that a lot, for example. Again, like with plant medicines in the Amazon, there's a few different ways in which that becomes very problematic. One very big component of healing culture nowadays is the popularization of trauma, for example. The way that trauma, without, you know, I don't want to trivialize the importance of working through trauma, but, you know, now trauma has become kind of like this catch-all term that really means nothing for the majority of people, right? Like if everything is trauma, then nothing is trauma. There's kind of like a stream within healing culture that tries to say that actually anything can be a traumatic situation depending on how a person experiences it. Yeah, and that the important thing is not necessarily the event itself, but 
how that impacted the person, the disconnection or fragmentation that happened within that person's psyche and embodiment as a result of a particular event, which can be anything, right? So one of the main narratives when working with plant medicines or psychedelics is healing from trauma, which sounds like a great thing, but it's also a very tricky thing, right? Mostly because that's also used oftentimes as a main selling point or marketing point for retreat centers, facilitators. I think one of the things about the primacy of trauma is that then trauma is the reason for everything. I have anxiety, and anxiety fucking sucks, and my whole family has it. It must Mm -hmm. be trauma. And if my whole family has it, it must be ancestral trauma. And the only way to hit the bullseye is to go into the trauma with the aid of a plant and then somehow dislodge it and move it somatically through my system, and then my anxiety will go away. But I am concerned that maybe there's a different way of meeting anxiety and actually the constant sort of medicines and ceremonies are actually potentially exacerbating it. But as you've said, this primacy of the narrative of trauma means that if I can just go deep enough and find that repressed memory or cry enough about something that happened in my childhood, if I just hyperfixate on that thing from my autobiographical experience, then that's going to change what's problematic in my lived experience, including all the socioeconomic aspects that are problematic in my lived experience, all of the perhaps neurobiological aspects that my, my, my neurodivergence may suddenly be resolved and I'll become normal and healthy mm-hmm. and happy. And as you said, not to, not to disparage trauma, but this primacy of trauma as the root of everything that can only be met with a peak psychedelic experience, I think that's at the core of this problem. Yeah, I mean, it is one of the main ones. And definitely the thing that you mentioned is like, you know, kind of this belief system that if we only manage to peel the onion enough to get to the core of that traumatic situation, that from where all of our problems originate, then we're going to be healed, which, you know, is absurd, obviously, because it only focuses, again, like on the individual experience without any consideration for how structures impact our well-being. Yeah, the political zeitgeist, sociocultural and environmental issues, so on and so forth, which is a very dangerous thing because it still keeps the locus of responsibility on getting better on the individual itself. Right? Which again, it's just it's complex. It's a complex thing. But you know, this narrative of trauma also creates like very, very dangerous situations. And something that I saw many times, for example, is that when the narrative focuses on you are going to drink plant medicines and ayahuasca is going to help you figure out your childhood trauma, then that primes people to experience those experiences in a very particular way, right? And we do know a lot about certain settings nowadays to kind of get a feel that psychedelics very rarely do anything on their own, right? Like there's a huge influence of what is the story that we're telling about what this is doing that will prime people to experience things in a very particular way. Or perhaps more accurately, how that person is going to make meaning and make sense of whatever experience they experience. Right? Like our meaning-making frameworks are something that we pass from one another, something that we give people. So when a facilitator is saying, like, your experience is going to direct you towards figuring out your childhood trauma, oftentimes a person is going to feel a lot of pressure to actually find out that childhood trauma. And, you know, that person can have all sorts of different experiences, perhaps things that have nothing to do with their childhood or nothing to do with their trauma and feel like they're missing on something. Like, oh, like something is not right. Like, why am I having this experience of awe or bliss or connectedness to the earth when I, you know, I'm supposed to kind of reach out for the deeper layers of my trauma? 
which is absurd, but also it can be dangerous within kind of mainstream psychology, right? There has been a raging debate, kind of, it's called, it has a name, the memory wars, right? And the memory wars has been a thing that has been going on for a long time between people that think that any technique or tool that orients towards recovering, suppress, or repress memories is a great thing. And people that think that any technique or tool that orients a person towards recovering, suppress, or repress memories is actually an incredibly dangerous thing. Mostly because we have a lot of evidence that suggests that our memory is incredibly fallible, right? And that most of the memories that we have are confabulations to some extent, and that is very, very, very difficult to actually pinpoint what happened. Do you have any yeah. resources that we can direct our listeners to so that they can do a little more research themselves on this confabulation of memory situation? It'd be nice for the, the listener to be able to compare the research themselves. Do you have some resource we can put in the show notes? Yeah, I will, I will send you some, some links pointing out good resources you can share later. We'll have that yeah. in the show notes, so if you're listening now, there'll be some, some resources. Yeah, great. So I, I've seen, for example, uh, the time that I was working, oftentimes we have teachers or facilitators that have different skills, so they're oriented towards different things. And there was a phenomenon that I started seeing, whereas whenever we had a person that was very, very, very trauma-oriented, and trauma was kind of like a fundamental part of the way that they presented ayahuasca and the way that they presented what this work was and what this work meant, there was a disproportional amount of people in the end, during the interviews that I did, who expressed the insight and experience in terms of like, oh, like I recovered that particular memory from that. But, you know, more often than not, it wasn't like, yeah, like, you know, I recovered that memory and I remember what happened. And it was like, I think that maybe something happened when I was a child, but I'm not quite sure whether that's true or that person or that person. You know, and some facilitators are more skilled than others, right? So, would, you know, a skilled facilitator will be exploring like that memory or that image, you know, in all sorts of different dimensions, symbolic dimensions, perhaps that's kind of like a standing for something else. Maybe it's not like a literal memory that you have, but an unskilled facilitator can do an incredible amount of damage to that person because that person can become convinced that somebody in their family did something to them and so on and so forth. And I mean, this is an incredibly tricky and touchy topic because yes, childhood sexual abuse and childhood trauma are big issues. They happen more often than people realize. But also sometimes that's not necessarily actually what happened. I mean, you know, like implanting a seed that will grow into a belief system of something like that can be extremely, extremely tricky. So I think like one of the main things that I would like to make people aware relates to the importance that storytelling has on how we experience and make sense of psychedelic experiences. And again, like it is incredibly important that the stories and narratives that we're putting out there are for the best benefit of that person's growth, healing, so on and so forth. The stories that we have now are good, but they're not good enough. Yeah, and I think as we think about set and setting, we have to put much more emphasis also on, on saying like, how do we actually orient people through how we present what this substances are, what these plants are, what this work means. But just like with a story or, or a story or a narrative that orients people towards something other than just trauma, something other than just like personal growth, something other than personal healing, something other than just kind of like these narratives that for the most part, they very much 
encourage and foster self-absorption. And they encourage and foster a mindset that exactly what you described before. If I only go deep enough into my thing, then all of my problems will go away. And it becomes kind of like a very self-centered journey that is not necessarily at the benefit of anyone. Because again, like my perspective is that the majority of issues that people carry with them are actually not related to their individual biographical experiences, but actually relational. Yeah, like the primacy of the relational component of it, I think, is something that we very, very grossly underplay. And we don't put as much emphasis on people to actually realizing that thing. One of the things that I like to say to people is that actually we don't really become better people in isolation. You know, like we become better in relationship. Like when we're interacting with people, that's how we actually can measure in a more objective way our actual healing and growth. Right? Like, how are we interacting with that person? How are we reacting to that person? How are we actually showing up in that relationship? How are we saying, you know, um, perhaps just doing things differently in a way that actually reflects that growth with people in our life? Like, those relationships, as triggering as they can be, I think those are the actual playground where that growth and that healing can manifest in the most potent way. And we don't orient towards that. We orient towards self-absorption, the narcissism, which is kind of like an interesting word. When we talk about psychedelic narcissism, or when I use that term, I don't necessarily mean it in a clinical sense. But, you know, narcissism as a set of orientations that will precisely derive in the kind of phenomena that I just described, right? Like this idea that the only playground for transformation is the inner playground, right? There's this cliche that people tend to repeat ad nauseum in these environments, which is the only meaningful transformation is like your own personal transformation. And there's no point really in doing anything in the world because the only meaningful change that you can do is within yourself and so on and so forth. Like it's like very, very, very inworthy kind of like, again, like narcissistically minded approach to what personal development means that completely bypasses and visibilizes and does a disservice to the importance of the growth that happens in relationship, right? Not only with other people, but in relationship with communities, in relationship with culture. It's very, very difficult for a person to be happy and healthy if they're living in complete isolation and alienated and lonely. And, you know, like, I don't know the numbers, but there's good research, for example, in the United States that points out that the majority of American people don't feel like they have one close friend. Right? Like people don't have any intimate relationship with anyone, let alone like a partner or a lover, like no intimacy, like an existential shutdown of like encapsulating kind of like the solipsistic experience. So it's very, very difficult for a person, no matter how much, how many layers of trauma and so on and so forth. If people don't start minding, right, like relationship, then it's not going to happen. When we talk about culture, for example, right, like that's another thing that oftentimes we bypass. I mean, no matter how much inner work you do and how many trauma we uncover and so on and so forth. If we're still embedded within a culture that thousands of times a day is bombarding us with messages, as we see, I mean, if you go through any North American city, right, like you can't, you can't go for one minute walking on the street without like being bombarded through, you know, in every direction from advertisements, from billboards in the radio, saying like, you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not happy enough, like you need this product or this service in order to be happy. Again, in, in our environment, everything is kind of like working against us to diminish our sense of self-worth in order to create that artificial vacuum to sell us all of that shit that nobody either wants or needs. And it's very, very difficult to actually say like, oh, like I love myself enough now because I did all this medicine work when every single day we're being told exactly the opposite by pretty much everything in an environment. 
So these relationships between the individual, society, culture, I mean, the environment is kind of like the easiest one, right? Like, oh, like, I, you know, I'm going to be happy and healthy and I'm going to do all of my healing work. But still, the ecological global crisis and global warming and, you know, the collapse of our ecosystems and half of the world that don't have access to clean water and food and so on and so forth. I mean, how can we think about being healthy and happy when we know we have that kind of like anxiety about not knowing what's going to happen in 10, 15, 20 years with our most basic support systems. I think it's ridiculous and absurd for people to talk about depression, for example, or talk about anxiety and say like, well, my anxiety and my depression are just either kind of like the mainstream psychiatric narrative, like there's something broken in your brain, you need these neurotransmitters in order to be happier, or you need this other pill in order to kind of balance your serotonin and so on and so forth. But also like, you know, healing culture kind of like follows in a very, 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 very similar way, which is not necessarily about neurotransmitters and molecules, but it's about like your trauma and your patterns and so on and so forth. When in reality, I mean, yeah, of course we're anxious and of course we're depressed. I mean, we're living in a dying planet. So Adam, something I appreciate in what you're saying is that we don't have to hate ourselves for our self-absorption because we are absolutely barraged by messages, by social media. Everything is pointing us towards uh, yeah. individual preoccupation. And I think that's helpful because I think that the guilt, well, I'll speak for myself, my guilt around my propensity for narcissism actually isn't making yeah. me less narcissistic. It's making me focus on that guilt as another thing that's wrong with me. So I think it's helpful for me personally and for our listeners to move out of the kind of guilt, shame, or more specifically shame around our narcissistic proclivities Let's not be ashamed of them. Let's notice that this is what's happening in our culture and actually meet them with more kindness. So that's important. And then the other thing that came up for me when you were speaking is this idea that the, the most beautiful gift of the psychedelic experience for me is to connect with true non-duality in a Gnostic experiential way. But what's tricky is that you have that experience, it feels so good, it feels so connected, you get the message, but then you're kind of slammed back into the individual ego mindset, barraged by all of these messages. And so, of course, you don't want to hang up the phone because you want to go back to that experience. And with the diminishing returns, I feel like the more your individual egoic mind starts to understand the psychedelic landscape, the less surprised you are by the experience and the more you're folding it into your own narrative. Um, the tea fairy, who I think you probably know, who I've had on the show, talks about egos like superbugs. If the bug keeps getting the penicillin and survives, it becomes resistant. And so if you have these kind of minor ego deaths and you keep having them, you kind of become resistant to ego death. And I think that that's part of this like never-ending healing journey thing is that perhaps it actually reinforces the egoic self-absorption and makes it actually stronger so that you, in some senses, while you know a lot more and you can speak the lingo, you've actually kind of polished your ego and polished your sort of like presentation yes. to the world by doing all of these transformational yes. experiences. How does someone like me, who has come to this place, in the healing journey, how do I break out of it? Do you have in your research and in the work you've done with Healing from Healing, do you have some protocols? I guess the way to say it is, 
Adam, how do you heal? So my personal approach is very informed by the medical humanities, right? Like my career, let's say, is in mental health, both from kind of like more the psych- psychology and cognitive sciences, but more recently, my postgraduate studies have been more in medical anthropology and medical sociology. And I like to inform a lot my approach through precisely the medical humanities, yeah, which are very, 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 very focused and efficient at giving context. Yeah, like illuminating the context in which the individual exists and all of these different relationships. And I think, again, like the most important thing, I think, is to understand very much in depth how the individual experience is influenced by the structures that we inhabit. So the phenomenon that you're describing, right, is something that happens. My take on it is that there's here like a very dangerous confluence of ideologies and practices. Like ayahuasca, for example, within the narrative context, the cultural context of kind of like post-industrial North America hyper-individualism is something that is very, very dangerous in many ways. I mean, it can be great, yeah, but also it can be very dangerous. Uh, because we are oftentimes unable to detach from the cultural values and narratives that we have absorbed throughout all of our lives. There's, there's a good term that I like a lot, cinematic epistemology. You know, there's something that I came across at some point in the internet and I adopted it. And cinematic epistemology is pretty much kind of like this way of making sense of the world as if each one of us was uh, the main character in a superhero movie. Yeah, And that's something that you see a lot within the conspirituality movement, right? Like there is that kind of sort of, I'm special and I know the truth and I'm going to save everybody and I'm going to illuminate everything. Oftentimes very much enhanced by psychedelic experiences. Like these things go hand in hand, precisely because that epistemic primacy, that when we don't have like a very critical approach to what these experiences actually mean, and we believe them literally, then it can very much reinforce that cinematic epistemology. The hero's journey is kind of like one of the bases for that way of experiencing the world. Like we're all in our hero's journey, whatever that means, but you know, much more heightened. Yeah, hyper-individualism can create that. Celebrity culture is another big factor that creates that. A lot of people kind of like see that as the epitome of glory, right? Like we want to be known, we want to be kind of like a household name, we want the praise, we want to feel like other people relate to what we do or what we say. There is kind of like that very, very, very strong pull towards celebrity, particularly in North American culture. Not only, but particularly, right? So celebrity culture, hyper-individualism, the hero's journey, like that cinematic epistemology, I think, primes people towards that kind of experience. Whereas everything just goes towards building up, building up, building up a ego, yeah, that does become extremely resilient to anything else. And I think it's very important also, like I don't think that the ego is bad or anything like it. I think, again, this is another one of these kind of like spiritual cliches that a lot of people kind of like repeat. They're like, oh, like a second experience is gonna give you some ego death and you're gonna become humble. And so, I mean, like we, we do need kind of like our egos and to be strong egos and to feel secure and have a sense of agency and know that we can impact the world in what we do and that we acknowledge and appreciate our skills and our tools. And I think that those things are important. The problem is not the ego itself and our sense of agency, but again, like that hyper resilient ego that just builds up within those frameworks of hyper individualistic celebrity culture, cinematic epistemology in which we all want to be superheroes and save the world 
coupled with real, very real constraints that are laid down to us because of our economic system. Right? Like we have to monetize our lives in every way that we can nowadays. It's very, very difficult. I mean, unless we are very specifically in, in some niche and we have like, you know, the majority of people do have like an incredible pressure to monetize our personalities, our identities, everything that we do, right? Like everybody now is a personal brand. Like we have to contribute to that personal brand. We have to market ourselves. So I don't think there's an inherent narcissistic personality in a pathological way that gravitates towards these things. But I think, I do think there's a cultural overarching framework that primes people towards that kind of experience through economic pressures, through ideologies, through all the different cultural aspects and so on and so forth. So, you know, what you were saying before, I think it's incredibly important. I think shame and guilt are not useful in any way, except when we become self-aware to the things that we have been doing ourselves and we want to do them differently. And then we can use that as fuel for actual real transformation. But other than that, really, I think it's important for people to depersonalize to some extent. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with you as a person, but you add a result of all of these different cultural systems and political pressures and economic pressures that are creating this stress for you to seek that kind of monetizing. I don't think that everybody wants to be a life coach. I think some people find, okay, that's a viable thing for me to do if I want to maintain a certain lifestyle, right? You know, when we think, for example, about like healing culture, the nuclei of this culture, right? Like Bali or the Sacred Valley in Peru or Tulum in Mexico or Copangan in Thailand. Like, I don't think people wake up one day and like, oh, I'm going to go and completely gentrify and ruin a foreign country with, you know, thing. I think like people do feel like a pressure, like, well, if I want to maintain a certain lifestyle and do the things, then I have to find a way to spend dollars or euros in a third world country when my money will go. So these are all things that are not necessarily like to feel guilty or shame, but to become increasingly aware of the impact those things have, but also understand the structural constraints that kind of like push us towards those things. Yeah, and, and I think that it's so simple, but the putting your attention on other people is a powerful refuge from the tyranny of the self. And it's interesting because you get into these kind of loops, I certainly get in these kind of loops, where I'm trying to fix me, and I'm focused on me, and I'm just making it worse. And then I do a podcast. And my podcasts, although I use my own experience, my podcasts are about teeing up my guests to share their wisdom or their story and about serving community. It's so obvious, but it's like whenever I can really put my focus on others, I actually do feel better. And so I think that something worth talking about is how do we move from celebration to healing to service where the service really is about interrelation about community about actually serving the world in a good way that's dharmic and that's meaningful that doesn't get captured by as you say this sort of desire for celebrity which i share this need to be important this need to be special which then brings you right back into the focus on the self because there are lots of people who are coaches who are very dedicated to their work and really want to support people and lift them up but people are building a coaching practice on Instagram, so they need mm -hmm. a personal brand. And so that personal brand is like focusing back to the self. So how do we parse this so that our service doesn't get captured by the same narcissistic tendencies that we're constantly being pushed by the society Well, that's a million-dollar question, isn't it? 
My personal approach to this, whenever I work with clients or whenever I facilitate workshops and so on and so forth, is like from the very get-go, prime people to experience transformation in the following way. So I said it's important to keep one eye or one and a half eyes always inwards, but also keeping one eye or half an eye outwards. And simultaneously, these are not mutually exclusive things, but simultaneously, you know, working on what it is that is holding us back, what it is that we can heal within ourselves, what are the traumas and behaviors that we want to outgrow, what are the things that we want to grow into. But simultaneously with that work, it's very, very important to become politically active. And politically active, I don't mean like, you know, like sign up for whatever political party and go vote. Politically, I mean like understanding that real transformation and real growth happen both inwards and outwards, right? That we can find ways within, it doesn't have to be something like incredibly bombastic. It can be something in our immediate surrounding, like find ways in which we can put into action whatever growth and transformation we experience to make life better for other people, like to address structural violence, to you know, address what it is in our workplace or in our city or what, I mean, as, as far as we want to go rippling out of the center of the self, as far as we go, what are the things that actually we have in our capacity to make a little bit better, to make this world a little bit better, to make the society a little bit better, to put some impetus behind some cultural shift that we believe in. I mean, this is not obviously my idea. This is something that has been repeated by a lot of, you know, therapists and spiritual teachers and so on, like there has to be a perfect marriage between the inwards, personal, transformational, healing work, but also action in the world. Whenever one of these two things get divorced from each other, the result is not great. <laughs> like on one side, if you do get like exclusively focused on inner healing and inner work and so on, again, like we, all the things that we described, right? Like the narcissistic tendencies, the self-absorption, the disconnection, so on and so forth. But, you know, on the other side of the equation, if we're exclusively focused on changing the world, then without doing any real actual inner transformational work, then most likely than not, we're going to be simply replacing some oppressive structure for another oppressive structure because nothing is going to really change. Yeah. So I think, again, like it doesn't have to be something incredibly important, but it has to be a shift in the narrative. It has to be a shift in the orientation. It has to be a kind of like a growing up part of kind of like this adolescent mindset that is very prominent amongst kind of like psychedelic scenes and say like, okay, now we're adults. We understand the importance of relationships. We understand the connections between individual health and well-being and community well-being and social well-being and environmental well-being. And we are going to find ways in which we can address both of those things together. And at the core of it, you know, there's a very, very simple understanding, which I think is like the most important key aspect of Amazonian ontologies, right? like ayahuasca cultures, Amazonian ontologies, they are inherently relational. And their whole concept of what it means to be healthy and sick and so on is relational. Like people in the jungle never get sick just because they get sick. They get sick because somebody else made them sick, right? And somebody else may be another person or a river or a tree, but at the core of that thought is that the person becomes ill because they infringed into a rule of reciprocity between them and somebody else, right? Somebody, again, somebody else is a very broad set in the Amazon because who qualifies as a person is extremely broad, right? Like there's human persons and there's tree persons and there's plant persons and there's bird persons, but illness in its essence is that a person broke some rule of reciprocity and hence the healing process is also going to be relational. 
right? When a Shipibo person is singing to a person that drank ayahuasca, if a person is ill, for example, and you want to get healed, in the core of the Amazonian healing tradition, the person that is singing is not necessarily just healing you as a person. First and foremost, they're repairing the broken relationship between you and whoever else made you ill. Right? So it's kind of like a dual thing. Yeah, they're healing you, but first and foremost, they are making sure that that illness right, wants, wants to sustain itself because that originating breakage of reciprocity of a bond right, gets repaired. And that, you know, that can be done in many ways. In the Shipibo imagination, as in many other imaginations in the Amazon, that can be through sorcery, like you have to defeat the offending sorcerer, or you have to appease the tree that you walk under when you weren't supposed to, or you have to make amends with the deer people when you hunted deer in a place that you weren't supposed to, right? So there is kind of like that dual approach that is never only about you, but about fixing the relationships that you broke that made you ill to begin with. So the main insight thing, I think, that I think is very, very important for place and time is that nobody can be happy and healthy unless everybody else is happy and healthy. That ha happiness and health cannot ever be individually encapsulated processes because we're constantly in dialogue with everybody else, right? And again, like this more subtle ways of understanding society, community, environment, and so on and so forth. But if we really want to reach a point of wellness, right? Like we have to start thinking beyond the individual and start addressing all of these different relationships and how those things impact the health of the individual and how the individual in turn actually has a lot of agency to transform the structures that are making us ill in the first place. So I don't really have like a formula that works for everybody, but I think it does become very important once a person starts becoming more aware of context and relationships and we get out of our self-absorbed individualistic narrative and we start seeing the world around us in a different light, that we start realizing actually that we have a lot to do also in those relationships. So I think that would be the main insight that I bring with, with me from the jungle and the thing that I think is most important for the world today, particularly, you know, what we were saying before, I think, well, when we think about like the main things that afflict us nowadays, epidemics of depression, epidemics of anxiety, you know, I have anxiety too. I have had anxiety for a while. I don't even know what anxiety means other than just kind of this pressure in my chest that I'm worried about shit that is not even relevant. Sometimes I'm just worried and I don't even know why. Like it's just like a very physical discomfort. And I'm thinking like, why am I so anxious? There's nothing in my immediate future that I need to worry about. Right now, I'm in a comfortable space. I have a relationship. I have a family. Like, I, like I don't have any existential real worries as an individual. But then I remembered, right? Like I remember, ah, actually, I have a newborn daughter, and I don't know what this world is going to look like in 10 years. I don't know what this world is going to look like in 20 years. Is it even a responsible and ethical thing to bring a child now to this world? You know, there's kind of like that ecological, catastrophic zeitgeist looming over all of us. And I think, you know, if we start addressing anxiety and depression, not necessarily as individual maladies, but as things that are normal reactions to incredibly abnormal situations. I mean, is it any wonder that people are anxious and depressed when so many people are scrambling to pay rent, working three jobs and can't even manage to do that? Or when, again, like when we're reaching like insane temperatures. You know, all of these things like the ecological anxiety, the depression of feeling stuck within a system that 
all of those things have a massive impact. So if we really want to address all of this, you know, depression and anxiety, yes, I mean, it's okay. We can do that through digging into our personal biographies and finding the moments in our life where we get fragmented and so on and so forth. But also, I mean, if we're not addressing the real collective predicaments, right, there are the source of so many things that we don't even acknowledge or address, then again, it's just another bandit. And I think that the real tragedy of psychedelics and plant medicines nowadays is that the way that they're being monetized and pushed and popularized is precisely as band-aids that do nothing but to maintain a status quo. That is robbing them from the real potential as drivers of revolutionary impetus in a time where we need precisely that. So by the end of the day, it is incredibly important that we do recover that capacity to understand context and relationship and have like a much, much, much wider approach of what being happy and healthy means, what our mental health means as an individual in a much broader context. It takes into account, right, like all of the environmental issues, all of the cultural and political issues. This is something that is very, very clear to a lot of people. You know, if a person is born in an unprivileged community with the wrong color skin in the wrong country, I mean, these are things that you don't have to explain to anybody because it's very obvious, right? But not all of us think in those terms. We tend to oftentimes invisibilize like all of the different cultural and political and socioeconomic aspects of what being happy and healthy means. And we think, again, if we only do enough ceremonies or we take enough drugs or we do enough shadow work, then everything is going to be healed, which is, again, it's absurd when we're not taking into account all of those different links between individual, society, culture, environment and so on and so forth. So I know this. I know that healing comes from incremental habitual change primarily. I know that that's true. I know that if I eat healthy, if I meditate, if I exercise, I know that that will lead to better health. I know that relational healing and connectedness are paramount. When I serve others, when I'm in community, when I am focusing outward, I know that makes me feel better. And I know that the system is fucked and I should be doing more to fight it, especially in a position of privilege. I know that these three things are true. And yet, somehow, I really have to like force myself to look at them because it's so easy to slip out of that and want the sexy mm -hmm. option the exotic ceremony with the beautiful people, with the sunrise dance party at the end of your, quote, healing experience. That is sexy, and it feels good, yeah. and I want it. I wonder, is there some way of striking a balance where perhaps there's almost like an avatar of self that gets the occasional vacation into the hedonistic, sexy self-expression, maybe Definitely. at a festival. It's kind of like Jamie Wheel's hedonic calendar, but for personal excess. Do you think that there's a way to almost like structure one's life so that the biggest weight of one's energy and work and time is going towards these habitual practices that really help, going towards contribution to local community in a way that makes one feel really connected, and towards actual political action. And yet there's also a kind of like fenced off time and space where one just gets to be the avatar of excess. Do you think that some formula like that could actually be almost like a halfway yes. house for the spiritual yeah. narcissist? So this is, a, this is a great topic. 
And for example, when I work with clients, one of the ways that I will orient themselves throughout the you know, therapeutic healing process is that the healing process or healing is not an end by itself, but it should be a means towards something else. And the way that I present what that something else is, is being able to be present for the things that make life worth living, right? The healing process, in my view, yeah, is the process of repairing the parts that prevent us from actually showing up for the things that make our life worthwhile. Yeah, relationships, first and foremost, being present with our daughters, you know, being able to experience a sunset and so on and so forth, which are many of the things that get lost along the way when we are not unhealed. Yeah, when we're in the throes of anxiety and we're unable to be present for one second to experience joy or experience like a beauty in a relationship and so on and so forth. So I think like the end goal of healing should be precisely that. Yeah, like being well enough or healed enough that actually we can be present for the things that make our life worthwhile. That will change from people to people. Uh, different people will have different things that they consider to make their life worthwhile, but those are the things that we have to orient towards. Now, there's something very, very fucked up that has happened with the hyper-medicalization of psychedelics within this construct of healing culture, which is the demonization of the recreational, which in my view is an incredible disservice to everything, <laughs> yeah, like to the potential of these things, but also to the human spirit. I think the recreational is not an afterthought. It's a primary thing that all of us need to orient towards. Again, when I'm working with a client, one of the pillars that I oftentimes focus on when it comes to figuring out wellness and, and health is whether that person actually is prioritizing joy and fun and whether that person is able to prioritize things that bring joy and are just fun for the sake of them being fun without the need to monetize it or beyond kind of like any productive mindset or like not in a exploited, auto-exploitative way, but simply like paying enough attention and prioritizing enough the things that actually bring us joy and are fun for us. And that's something that oftentimes is one of the most difficult hurdles for people. Because again, like that incredibly destructive mindset of hustle culture, of productivism and consumerism and the way that we like completely demonize like doing things just for fun if they're not being productive. And I don't know if this is true for you, but this is true for me and this is true for the majority of people that I've talked to. I, you know, even now, after I've been doing this kind of work for so long, I still have that little voice in the back of my head all the fucking time. I'm, you know, waking up in the morning. I don't have anything like immediately urgent. My daughter wakes up. She's five months old. I want to just hang out with her. And, you know, we're looking at each other's eyes and she's incredible and she's beautiful and my heart is full. And after four minutes, like the back, of, there's this voice in the back of my head, like, okay, this is cool, but you should be doing something. Like, you know, you can reach for your phone, check your emails. Like, there's something right now that you should be doing instead of sharing this incredibly precious moment with this person, with this being, with your daughter. And, you know, that takes me away from the moment. And sometimes I'm able to go back to it and like, okay, fuck that. That's not, like nothing. There's nothing in the world that is more important than this moment right now. Okay? Sometimes I can do that. Most of the times I can't. Most of the times I get caught up in like, okay, let's put you in your crib, feed you, change your diaper, and then I have to get back to work because I have to. I have to do that. Like, this is kind of like anxiety, productivity, mindset, the auto-exploitation. Yeah, this is a very good term by Byung-Chul Han, a Korean-German sociologist. So auto-exploitation is something that is very much ingrained in our beings and our mindsets. So we have to be able to prioritize the recreational, prioritize the fun, prioritize the celebration, prioritize the joy. We have to have environments like that. I can tell you, okay, this is something that I 
spent many years in the jungle. I appreciate ayahuasca so much. I appreciate plant medicine so much. I appreciate these traditions that orient towards particular things so much. And I, maybe, maybe it's like a false equivalence again, but you know, in terms of psychedelic experiences and the benefit that I derive from it, there really is nothing like spending 12 or 13 hours glued to a speaker in a dance floor with, you know, a tab of acid and some alcohol and friends and like that vibe of communitas of sharing with each other, like the sheer experience of joy and fun and ecstatic, whatever. I mean, those are the kind of experiences that I think have been the most healing for me. And I think those are the experiences that can be the most healing for a lot of people precisely because they're not orienting towards anything productive per se. They're not orienting towards uncovering any, they're just orienting towards like having fun, feeling joy, like being present with the people that you love on a dance floor, right? Like the, the ecstasies of good music and like just dissolving into the ether of the realm of that DJ and, those have been, by far, I think, like the most meaningful psychedelic experiences that I had. And I do want to seek them out, okay? But also, as I've grown, I guess, older, I do... I'm more choosy and more sparingly with environments and the frequency in which I choose those experiences. So I think we have to be able to have those experiences. We have to be able to curate spaces dedicated to those experiences. We have to be able to allow people to do that without a sense of guilt or shame because oh you're not doing psychedelics in the right way because you're not orienting towards healing or like oh you know like this hyper medicalized perception that there's only one right way of using these substances which is absurd and ridiculous but we have to make those spaces you know festivals do that parties do that there's all sorts of different ways in which we can curate those experiences for ourselves and others and that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't big problems with some of these spaces and some of these structures. So it's not about abolishing Burning Man, per se. It's not about saying like, oh, this is all fucked up and you know obscene and so on and so forth. It's like, okay, yeah, this is a place that provides people with peak experiences they will remember forever. Very likely also they will catalyze some transformation and we cannot just throw the baby with the, with the bathwater, but we have to be able to also be critical about the aspects that can be better. And all of this process, again, like this is the first thing that I said, I think, in the podcast and the thing that I just want to clarify again. Yes, we can be extremely critical of things out of love. Yeah, we can say like, well, this is not about destroying shit, but about making things better. Yeah, that we can make actually spaces that as we learn as community and individuals, that we can learn and also like pay much more attention to the shadow aspects of all of these things and we can make spaces that are better. Adam, I do believe that I am having a transformational experience <laughs> right now with you. Right. I'm the life is a festival guy. I'm the guy who's like, make life like a festival. And I believe that I have gotten captured in this fucking healing thing. Because I look back at the beginning of Burning Man, for me, my first couple of years, and there were so many shenanigans, and there was so much play, and I ran the same camp four years, and it was, it was really community. And somehow I got into the loop, just exactly as you're describing, of like optimizing the experience so that I could heal, so that I could grow. And I think what I've been doing is I've been looking at this this party, heal, serve. That's been like a byline of this show. Is First we party, then we heal, then we serve. And there's kind of like a hierarchy of that. It's like, well, we celebrate and that's what gets us on the dance floor in the first place. But that tab of acid that we use to celebrate then dislodges some deep 
wound and then we got to go heal it and then we get stuck in the healing of it and we're like, ah, oh, I've been healing too much. What's next? Well, I'm going to serve. I'm going to look outside of myself. I think that maybe I have falsely hierarchized this because all three of these elements are so potent and important and the healing is too. But yes. celebration itself is about building community. Celebration yes. itself is about healing. Celebration itself is about service. And when you look at the structure of a festival, particularly how they've evolved with something like the Zendo project, yeah. you can go and you can party. And if you need to do the healing, there are some people who are giving their service to hold you when you land in that space. So I almost feel like, well, I've always felt like these festival structures are actually in some ways superior to a clinical environment for yeah. these medicines and for healing. And I, and I think that now I feel like I've gotten out of balance and, and I think egoically out of balance in this idea of like the healing. We must heal. I'm healing my wounds. I'm healing your wounds. I'm serving you. When really like we need to celebrate we need to stomp our feet on the ground. And there are ways to do it that have less of the excess of the 12-hour line out of Burning Man that went viral on social right. media. But these festivals are magical environments. That's yes. why I do this show. I, that's why I fell in love with them. And I've just, man, I've been taking myself too seriously with all this fucking healing journey shit. Yeah, I mean, I hear you. I think, you know, there's many of us that have come to similar realizations as of late, hence... We're talking about it. Two years ago, there wasn't really much conversation around all of these topics. All of the people that you mentioned that are touching on these things, in my, if my memory serves me well, this is like from the last couple of years or so. I think the, the cultural moment is ripe. The zeitgeist is ripe. Many of us have reached the stage during this journey where we didn't really have a choice but to start, I guess, like start romanticizing and idealizing less and start applying critical tools and perspectives a little bit more honestly yeah and again I, I, like a lot of people get triggered but i i definitely personally feel that all of these things are an act of love yeah like we have to be able to look at ourselves and our communities and our scenes and say like i mean this is great but you can be better there's something you wrote about Burning Man, which I think is a nice place to land. You've got a beautiful critique of Burning Man recently posted on the Healing from Healing Instagram. I thought we would do more of a Burning Man deep dive today. I don't really feel like we need to, but I'll direct our listeners to reading that and following up with some of your other writings. But after a pretty savage critique of Burning Man, in which you say things like, despite all its pretensions, Burning Man is the most absolute expression of savage capitalism, suicidal consumerism, unrestrained libertarianism, and scandalous planned obsolescence. You go on to say, I thoroughly enjoy every minute out there on the playa every time. The inherent contradictions in such an event sit very well with my own paradox-embracing nature. There's so much beauty and so much terror in this pretend radical participation in what may very well be the final spasm of a dying civilization. It's both exhilarating and somewhat paralyzing to be alive in a place and time where we can not only witness the fall of an empire and the irreversible devastation of the Anthropocene, but actually pitch in either way. So let there be paradox. 
My favorite character in all of Greek mythology is many-minded Odysseus. I love that we may have many minds and that we can catch ourselves when we find ourselves stuck, even if we are stuck in our preoccupation with becoming unstuck. May we become aware of the paradox and embrace it and remember that we are simple humans doing our best amidst massive global processes and not be so guilty and ashamed and not take everything so seriously, but do a bit of healing, do a bit of service, and for God's sake, do a bit of celebration. Yeah, perfect. And whenever whenever I would close a workshop, one of the things I would say in closing is that it's important to remember that this is very serious work that demands that we take it very lightly. And I think one of the greatest antidotes to many of the things that we discussed today is precisely being able to embody that lightness, to stop taking ourselves so seriously. Like seriousness is such a pathological component of all of these different things that we've talked about. It's not to say that there aren't things that are serious and we shouldn't like be serious about them, but you know, well, that self-referent seriousness, that is, I think, definitely one of the major contributions to all of those things. Yeah, when we're able to see ourselves in context and understand our own cognitive and epistemic limitations and realize that the unknown unknowns are by far like the biggest quadrant in all the epistemic quadrants and that we don't really know much about anything. And just putting everything into the right perspective, I think coupled with a good sense of humor, I think those are the best antidotes that we can hope for for these things. Lightness, humor, perspective. I think we found the antidote, Adam. I think we really nailed it. And as long as we don't take the antidote too seriously, which would completely neuter it, humor and lightness. My mother likes to say that God is never serious, but always sincere. May we be never serious, but always sincere. May we show up May we try, may we strive, but but let's make jokes. God, I need more, I need to make more jokes. <sighs> Perfect. Adam, such a pleasure to speak with you today. I'm actually leaving this conversation significantly revivified after quite a depleting Burning Man experience. And yeah, more joy, more music, more connection, and more action in the world for our fellow humans. Thank you, Adam. Where can people follow? I know there's the Healing from Healing website. Your Instagram is very popular. Where else can people follow your work? Is there anything on the horizon that we should be aware of? How can people continue this conversation? There's a few older academic things that I have on uh, ResearchGate that I can I can give you the link and you can put it on. Yeah, my, my PhD thesis is forthcoming, which is going to be focus on all the things that we talked about today. I'm trying to make it accessible, not necessarily only for the people in the ivory towers of academia, but actually a piece of work that's literally pleasurable for people from all walks of life to read, enjoy, and learn something from. So hopefully that will be done by next summer. Beautiful. Adam Aronovich, Thank you for the work you do and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I know I got a lot out of it and I'm sure our listeners did too. Keep fighting the good fight and I'll see you at some psychedelic conference sometime and we can make fun of everything. Great. Perfect. Thank you for having me.
Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor.